The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Good evening, Ilya. How are you doing? Uh, good evening, Ben. I'm, I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? Well, I, I was just telling you off mic, I had a great mystery. Anyone who, uh, who wants to help me solve a mystery, uh, you can go to my Twitter or my Instagram or Facebook. Uh, I even posted it on LinkedIn. A total, I don't know, obviously not a stranger, somebody who knows me, in the middle of the day, walked up to my house wearing a hat and a mask, and they seem to have a big bushy white beard and possibly long hair, but it, it's kind of hard to tell. I'm just looking at ring camera video. And they dropped a box, a big box, uh, but a big flat box in front of my house with my name spray painted in red. So it looked like dripping blood inside the box is an enormous and kind of terrible original painting of a clown. Yes, I just just watched that and it was not me. I'll just I'll go out and say it officially was not me. I would tell you if it was me. I I didn't I didn't do this. I suspected it might have been you, but it wasn't you. But anyway, uh, that that's the most interesting thing that's possibly happened to me ever. And I'm very happy. And I love this horrific painting of a clown. I, I have kind of a thing for horrific clown paintings. So that was awesome. Who would have thought that you're into horror stuff? I mean, really? <laughs> well, it's not, it's not horror stuff. I don't like intentionally scary clown stuff. I, I kind of like ones that are like painted sincerely out of love of clowns. Those are the best ones. And sometimes when they're painted out of sincere love of clowns, but with not the most amazing painting craftsmanship those are even better for me well speaking of terrifying clowns uh check over is on the wow. show today. that was the best segue ever check over dp of it chapter two how you you're amazing ellie i i, I wasn't angling for that that was awesome you totally set me up so oh, that was brilliant yeah he's he's on the show today for the third uh, time I, I, yeah, he's kind of our reigning champion, or he's neck and neck with Faden Papa Michael. Faden Papa Michael and Checo have been having this sort of like, you know, I'm sure it's it's a it's a very spirited horse race to see who can be on the show more, more times. So, and it's like three full interviews with each one of them. It's 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 a pretty amazing thing. Checo, it, it was great to have him back on. He is uh, just a wonderful, sweet man, a very generous. And uh, always brings quite a bit of insight. He had just recently uh, shot the TV show Them for Amazon Prime. It's an excellent show, which I recommend to anyone who likes super scary stuff. Checo is one of those people who is like, how did such a a warm, friendly, avuncular man end up shooting all these terrifying things? But but here you go. (laughs) You know, uh, people go where the work is. And uh, <laughs> and and I think when you do really well with something, uh, they want you back to do more of it. If yeah. you're really talented and you do great at something, people talk about getting pigeonholed. But if you do really great work, you know, I don't know if it's really pigeonholing because you get lots of people calling you asking you to work your magic again. I mean, it's probably a almost a subject for its own close focus one day. But being pigeonholed, being fe- the fear of being pigeonholed to me is like you should be so lucky in this business that people want you to do anything. So getting uh, stuck in a genre, 
not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You know, like you could be getting some pretty steady work, building up a huge body of work and, you know, you, you can move around. I'm always impressed with the people who uh, who don't seem to stay in the same genre. And it's usually directors more than DPs because DPs tend to bounce around all over genres. But, you know, when you see somebody like Danny Boyle or Ron Howard who don't seem to like they don't have a lane, they haven't picked a lane. Those are the most charmed careers that exist. But plenty of amazing people just stick in one genre and explore it. And uh, I think that's also a, a pretty fair career path. So what is our close focus today? Well, I was really hoping to have a close focus that never mentioned a certain pandemic that's going on or a certain virus. I just uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm going to swear. No idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And so I'm still going to try really hard not not to mention those things. But hybrid distribution, movies that go to a theater, they go to uh, streaming, they go with a window. That's sort of the uh, a big topic of discussion right now. Day in the and industry. date. Day, Day and, and date. date. Big thing. Yeah. So yeah. there's an article. It was at a Hollywood Reporter article. Uh, ben, I uh, actually it was Variety. It was Variety. So take us through that. Take us what the latest the the latest is on on hybrid distribution. Well, it was uh, the article uh, was talking about how AMC Theaters has reached an agreement with Warner Brothers, basically shortening the window, which I think used to be 90 days. So like a movie would have a 90 day window from when it went into the theaters before it ever showed up on any form of streaming or home video or when we used to get the, you know, the digital versatile discs, you know, (laughs) DVD for for those of you who who couldn't follow Ben. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they've shortened it to 45 days. So the question is, if you really want to see a movie, can you wait a month and a half? (laughs) Um, Because under the old model, you would have first run theaters, then often second run theaters. And, uh, you know, movie would kick around. Then it would kind of fall off the radar usually for a while. And then you'd see it pop up on DVD or streaming or whatever. And even currently on places like Amazon where you pay to stream it. But that still is is breaking the theatrical window. And the shorter you make that as the organization that kind of governs theaters, NATO. NATO. (laughs) (laughs) The North American Uh, Theater Owners Association. Yeah, that does it, yeah. Uh, NATO, they basically say it's breaking their back and they're probably pissed off this, yeah i mean that's i don't necessarily disagree can i tell you like a personal thing hmm. i love james gunn's movies and i was very excited to see his new suicide squad movie but the fact that it was on hbo max and i could just watch it made it too easy for me to not go to the theater to see it and here's the thing i bet i would have enjoyed that more in the theater and i and i really enjoyed the movie i'm not i'm not bagging on the movie at all but I think it would have been a more fun experience in the theater. Now, you know, there are at the moment mitigating factors, which you asked me not to mention, that would prevent a lot of people from wanting to go to the movie theaters. Cough, 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 coronavirus, cough, cough. But you said um, it. You, damn you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry. You know, when they look when they look at the numbers of the Suicide Squad, the James Gunn, the Suicide Squad, not to be confused with David Ayer's. Suicide Squad, the box office numbers are lower than than expected. And this is all in this article. And they show actually that movies like uh, the new Fast and Furious movie, F9, which had no day and date on it, made, you know, significantly more in, in theaters, even under the circumstances that we're in. It made $70 million theatrically. And uh, there's a bunch of movies here that you can look at in this article to compare. Although Black Widow, which did have a day and date release, made $80.4 million. So it actually made more than F9 uh, with a hybrid release, but that was with Disney Plus's premium thing where you can pay 30 bucks. So the question is, would you rather pay 30 bucks to watch it at home or whatever, you know, you add up the the cost of 
parking and snacks and stuff like that to to watch it in the theater. And we've talked about it a lot on here. You know, my opinion is it's always better in the theater because the theater has something that no amazing home theater will ever have. And that's the audience. And the audience is what makes it more fun. At, At home, though, you can pause it to go to the bathroom, get a snack. All that stuff, which in the theater, no one's going to let you pause it. <laughs> you can't pause it. You, you're, no, I understand. You're the- it would be like uh, the old timey trains where they had the brakes that people could pull on. That'd be weird, right? And anyone could just pause the movie. Yes, I agree. I agree. But I think that like it's not just the size and it's not just the scope of seeing, seeing a movie in the theater, which are both big things. But a movie, for instance, like The Suicide Squad, I think the jokes would land funnier if you were in a room full of people. And it's not it's not that it's making up for the joke not being funny. The movie, in my opinion, is hilariously funny, but it's just you will laugh more in a crowd and the action scenes would be more thrilling and everything everything else would be amplified because you were there with other people. But this is my commentary on the laziness of humans or at least myself, which is like, oh, wait, I could like figure out how to like get childcare and go to a theater and do all this stuff or. I can just watch this on the streaming service I'm already paying for. And I feel like that's the obvious choice. This brings up a thought that I'm, I'm having here regarding the theatrical experience. And um, if a luminary cinematographer shot something, you know, it, it, it could be anyone. But let's say, uh, you know, Bob Richardson or uh, David Mullins or whomever you, you might pick. I think the experience of seeing what they do on a big screen is all that much more impactful. And it's not necessarily mm-hmm. just just the story. I mean, the story is, of course, the, the, the yeah. But I mean, don't forget Rachel Morrison, who we interviewed for Mudbound, was nominated for Best Cinematography. But that mostly, you know, got a limited release in L.A. and New York and was released on Netflix. I think that the theatrical experience will continue. I think that there will be some audience members and theaters are going to get clever about attracting people. I don't think it'll necessarily be movie pass level of stuff where, you know, Hey, pay one fee and come see all the movies you ever wanted to. But I mean, they are doing that, but certain movie theater chains are, are actually doing that. Cinemark is doing it. And I think AMC is doing that. I know that Cinemark is doing it. I wasn't sure that AMC was doing it, but I got the feeling it was a limited time thing, not their new standard business model. I could be wrong. I mean, if you're a listener and you uh, subscribe to one of those services, please, you know, write us and yeah, tell us what, to, yeah, what yeah, you yeah. think of that. How, what is uh, in fact, your, in fact, like record yourself doing a voice memo and email it to us. And we'll we'll play it on the show. Yeah. And if you could do it as the voice of movie phone, I would I would love that, too. Welcome to movie phone. I'm, ki- I'm well, kidding. I think you, you yeah, just dated I, both of us. Yeah, that's sorry, but you know, I, you I mostly think, dated yourself, but you dated me because I understood exactly what you were talking. Y- about. Yeah, exactly. And and most people who are probably listening to our show are like, movie phone? What the what the fuck is movie phone? Right, please. All right, hey, anyway. let, let's move on. Let's move on to our uh, fantastic interview for the third time with with Checo. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here via Zoom for the first time, but with our returning champion, Checo Varese, who has, is now our, uh, this is our third conversation with you. The last time we talked to you, It Chapter 2 had just come out. And I think, I think you are now tied with uh, Fade and Papa Michael. In, in actually, both of you have done a live recording, and we've interviewed both of you three times. So, awesome. Oh my God, what a company. Uh, <laughs> Faden is... Oscar nominated multiple and award-winning and fantastic cinematographer. So that's an honor. And thank you so much for having me at home again. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's great. To, it's honestly, it's just great to see you. Haven't seen you in, in a while because, you know, there was that pandemic-y thing going on. Um, and in the meantime, you uh, have shot a brand new TV series 
called Them. Now, uh, when we talked to you last time, uh, you told me that you were, I think you were about to shoot a TV series or you were talking to producers about shooting a TV series. Was that TV series Them? Probably it was because after each chapter two, I did a couple of pilots and my fair share of commercials. So you can buy mayonnaise and cars happily, believing that there is the best mayonnaise <laughs> and the best cars ever in the world. And probably a hamburger in between. I can't remember. Um, you can put mayonnaise on the hamburger or you could just make a car. Yes, out of and you can put a car on the hamburger, but you can put a hamburger in a car, though. That's true. You can pick up a hamburger in a car. So, yeah, we can. Combine yeah, I don't recommend that. I don't recommend <laughs> that because then it gets all dirty and smelly. Um, it probably was them. That was the show I did in 2019. It's a show for Amazon and it's a fantastic show. Very relevant for many reasons. Oh uh, God, cinematographically, yes. emotionally, I wouldn't say politically, I would just say emotionally relevant for all of us that live in this part of the world. I would say it's it's got some political, you know, it's got a it's got a political axe to grind. And I'd say it's kind of with the zeitgeist of uh, shows like Lovecraft Country and Watchmen in terms of how it's kind of showing us a different side of racism, showing framing it in a way that a lot of us have never encountered. Um, when I was watching it, I kept thinking about how you were trained, if I'm not mistaken, as an architect. And I was noticing in the show the way the architecture, because you know, it takes place, it looks like Town and Country Magazine or Better Homes and Gardens from like the 1950s or 1960s. And it's Compton in LA, but it, there's a real attention to detail when it comes to architecture. And I was wondering, while watching it and thinking about your your background like did your background in architecture inform kind of the spaces and 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 the way that you were uh kind of designing the the lighting in the camera and how, how to feature it it definitely does if i were to start again and be 24 or 25 again i probably would not make all the mistakes i did i was telling my daughter the other day that once one is born with 150,000 mistakes, so I've done 135,000, so I have another 15,000 left to make. Nice. I did 150,000 so, mistakes today alone, so I'm done. Good. Thanks. Well, um, you're, you're good. You're good. You're fine. Okay. You, you'll be fine. You, don't, you, you won't do any tomorrow. Um, good, good. And I, I think I would study architecture again. Really? To be a filmmaker. Yes, yes. Not, not to diminish film, uh, film schools by no stretch of imagination. But if you're gonna do undergrad and then postgraduate film, architecture is a fantastic tool because it teaches you space, it teaches yeah. you flow, and it teaches you color, it teaches you art, and it teaches you construction. Architects don't build walls, unlike some presidents. Architects don't build walls, <laughs> architects build, build spaces. And cinematographers don't like walls. Cinematographers like spaces. And to answer your question, yes, I was very involved in the, not in the production design. We had a wonderful production designer, Tom Hammock. And we were talking about exactly that in, in, in sense of he will come up with an idea in a space and I will tweak the space. You know, one of the tricks of cinematographers is a camera is this wide and then you add the battery and then you add the minimum focus of the lens. I have to go back to a fit in the frame. Well, and, and for those listening to us, it's uh, you're, you're, you're describing what, like four feet, three and a half feet? Yeah, well, four feet. 
So if your room, if your room in your house, which is the one I'm seeing right now is nine and a half feet by 10 feet wide, if you were to build a set, you'll make it four feet wider each side because the camera cannot be at the wall. The camera has to be physically a little further out of the wall. So that kind of conversation, it only can happen if you have a spatial awareness. And the spatial awareness of an architect is brilliant. So yeah. yes, it, it had an influence in every frame and every shot, definitely. That's awesome. I, I, I always remember you bringing that up the first time I met you. And we also interviewed uh, a, an old friend of mine, Carlos Gonzalez. And he, he's an old Corman guy and he's been around forever and does amazing work. And he also started out as an architect and I was like, huh. I'm starting to see a pattern. I, like, I want to know who else, who, who, what other I know. photographers are. Maybe I would love to know. I, I'm going to make an email, a, a massive email <laughs> in the ASC. Who started as an architect? <laughs> but I, when I was watching it, like, you know, the, the, I mean, like we're seeing a lot of like 1950s style, like ranch houses and stuff in, in Compton or maybe 1940s style or 30s, uh, but also just kind of that almost classic Hollywood style. And one of the things I, I didn't know when I started watching it is that it takes place in kind of old Hollywood. And the look is amazing. Also, you know, like I said earlier, there was kind of a better homes and gardens kind of look. I mean, like to me, it's sort of like if Get Out and Edward Scissorhands had a had a child, you know, look wise. But then there's like this real sharp crispness that you brought to the to the cinematography. Can you talk about how you went about building the look for it? Well, first of all, we it all starts with an idea. And this idea was was conceived by the showrunner, writer, creator, whose name is Little Marvin. Mm-hmm. He must have another name, but I don't know it, and nobody does. <laughs> so it's, he goes for Little Marvin. Man of mystery. I'm sure. I'm sure his driver's license says Little Marvin at this point. But anyway, <laughs> maybe it is. That maybe I don't his know. Name changed legally, you know, like Teller from Penn and Teller. That his name is just Teller. He doesn't have a last name. Of course, he. It's a brilliant guy. And if you if you see the show, you have seen it. But if your audience sees the show. You have to put yourself in, in, in the shoes of this gentleman that it's his first show. Very first. He has done nothing before. This is his first related. show, really? Yeah. He has nothing. Not, I mean, nothing. I mean, he oh, has a life. Oh. And he, he, he was a kid and he was a teenager and he was a, a brilliant something in the fashion industry and a brilliant something in the publicity industry. I don't wow. know much about it. But this is his first show. Imagine how the f- second show is going to be. Oh, my God. Or the third show is going to be. It's unbelievable. So he wrote the eight episodes uh-huh. editorially, the music, the cues, the look. So the first conversation I had with him after I was hired to do the pilot, I had a pitch and I showed my ideas about the pilot. And, and then the first conversation I had with him, even before talking to the director, he said, well, you know, and he has a wonderful way of saying things that it's not with my butchering English accent. Uh, <laughs> he goes, imagine this being a 1950s classical movie, Hollywood movie, with the language, the camera language of a 1970s, uh, French Connection, All the President's Men, The Deer Hunter, you know, that kind, kind of yeah. camera language, immediacy with the tricks of the music videos of the 90s and with the huh. technology of 2021 or whatever, 2019. Well, and even like even the credits, and I know that you are not responsible for the credits and all that stuff, but they had a specific kind of Saul Bass look. It's, it's really cool. Fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah it's like from a graphical standpoint. He imprinted that feeling and he gave us carte blanche on many things. And when I say carte blanche, I mean, he let us dream and then he wrangled us in whatever he needed and he wanted, which is yeah. a, a great way as opposed to giving you carte blanche and then cutting your wings. It's like, well, yes, this, but not that. So what I think it is, is he has this ability and I shared the credit with Javier Grovet, a fantastic cinematographer that, that shot the other half of the episodes. And Javier and I started, when I started prepping, Javier said, can I join you in the prep? And I said, please, you know, that's, that's, that's a luxury. Awesome. No, no, I, I'm, always, I'm always interested in, in how that collaboration works because, you know, you're going to have your episodes, he's going to have his episodes. I'm sure that there may be, I, actually, I don't know if there are going to be some scenes that he shot that end up in your episodes and vice versa, or if it's like strictly not, not that, but also just like how you create a visual language that you both are going to adhere to that's individual to both of you, but also coheres in, in the show. First of all, it's my first experience in a whole TV show. I've done pilots, many, 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 many pilots, way too many pilots. I've done The Strain <laughs> for Guillermo del Toro, and I did three episodes and then two at the end, but I've never done a series. And that was an opportunity for me after each chapter two and being nine months away, that was an opportunity for me to be at home in shot in LA, I live in LA. Um, I live in American Airlines, but sometimes I pay rent in LA. Uh, mortgage, sorry, not rent. Um, and then what happens is it was a great opportunity for me to work at home uh, and see my daughter at night or on the weekends with my wife. So when they said alternating the piece, who do you want as an option? I said, oh my God, let me think. And immediately the face of Javier showed up because he's, first of all, he's an extraordinary cinematographer. Um, he was born and raised in Mexico. We speak the same language, not necessarily mm -hmm. Spanish, but the same camera language. Yeah. And we have the same sensibilities. And, and nor Javier or my ego go through our actual work. Javier's ego goes through who knows what, and my ego goes through who knows what. So I don't have an ego about, Javier would say, what do you think about that? And I'm like, oh my God, that's a great idea. And I would say, what do you think about that? And Javier goes, ah, that sucks. Okay, thank God you said it in Spanish, you know? So we really teamed up in a very sort of homogenous way, you know, and, uh, to your question whether his scenes ended up in my episode or my scene in his episodes, not by design, but by default, that's what happened. Yeah, you know, I, not I by figure design. it's got to happen from time to time or, you know, like, of especially course. in these short run series where you're doing, you know, whatever, 10 episodes, you know, they might be like, oh, actually, if we the real end of that of that episode is the first scene of the next episode or whatever. Yeah. Take it here, put it there. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. And, and if you dissect... Javier has a style and I have my own style, but to, to keep using restaurant and chef's analogies, <laughs> which you know I like, if you go to your favorite restaurant, not every night the same chef cooks. There are other chefs, yeah. you know, but the dish tastes fantastically the same, yeah. you know? So we, I try to honor my other chef and he tries to honor my cooking. So yeah, it's yeah. the same thing. I try to honor Javier and I would ask my gaffer or my key grip, I'm reshooting this scene or I'm shooting an additional shot of Javier's shot. What did he do? Yeah. And he did this. I would have done something different, but this is what I need to do for him. And he would do exactly the same for me. So it was a great 
marriage and an and opportunity of collaboration. And are you tracking, you know, since it really is like a tight series arc, I always wonder, like, you know, if you're if you're doing a feature, you might be like, well, you know, the green light is going to imply menace and we're going to use more green light as, as we get towards the climax of the movie. But when you're following an episodic structure, that's kind of not resetting the world, but, it, you know, it's 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 building a much longer story. Are you aware? Are there like arc elements uh, or, or symbolic colors, lights, you know, use of backlight or frontlight or whatever that uh, you and the other DP are kind of playing with to kind of build that arc towards the climax of the season? You wish that is the case, not necessarily all the time. In the yeah. case of them, with Javier, we had this sort of nonverbal agreement of sort of give ourselves notes at the end of every episode and okay. said, we brought this and I think it works. Or secretly, you know, they brought this and I think it sucks, you know. <laughs> so, so we were not gatekeepers, but we were steering the boat in a direction that we thought it will serve the process. But yes, I mean, you start by talking about, okay, one of the things was there is no red. No, we tried to avoid red. Mm -hmm. Why? Because red, it's only the color of blood and it's the color of revenge and it's the color of fear. So we tried to avoid red. So there was nobody with like a red t-shirt. I mean, red shirt, you yeah. know, and there were no red walls. So when we brought the red in influence on the actual frame, then what happens is you get completely surprised about it. You know, yeah, yeah. you get complete because it's like, oh my God. So there is in episode one, the little girls start singing to her mom and there's the red drape the sun is outside and it hits the red drape and it hits her so the light it's all red it looks like a you know a window dressing in Amsterdam at two in the morning I'm not sure you've ever been there um, but but uh, me neither I just read it in the papers um, it's 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 basically brings that kind of feeling you know but there were not too many of those and yes to answer your question, you try to build an arc in the camera language and in everything that that builds up to the climax. For you, because you've done a lot of horror-related stuff, you know, The Strain, It, Chapter 2, like, what is it about a horror premise that keeps you excited? And, like, how do you keep it alive and make it fresh for yourself? Well, you mentioned The Strain. The Strain is about these outcasts that take over the world. And it's yeah. these vampires that are a, a metaphor for outsiders, for immigrants, for whatever. You know, it's a metaphor for the other. Yeah. Each chapter two, it's a drama about these friends that don't know how to deal with their past. And they yeah. try to deal. It could be called, you know, breakfast in the restaurant in the morning as opposed to the each chapter two. I mean, the, 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 the horror of it. It's just a, a coincidence, an accident. I mean, this is about the relationships. Breakfast with evil clown, with lots of Bre evil Breakfast clowns. with evil clown, yes, exactly. Yeah. Badly served breakfast with evil clown. Um, <laughs> and then it's not about the creatures or the entities. It's about the horror of racism and redlining and, and, and injustice. So if you want to thread throughout my horror career, which I have is the threat I think is the threat of what is the the subtext of the horror it's not yeah. about I, I I get 
I haven't done a, a movie about a guy with a with a, an axe that chops people's heads in pieces. No, I haven't done one of those ones. And I'm not really interested in one of those ones. Um, yeah. I, and I think it's fantastic and I think it's a great genre and hopefully people can keep doing it. I don't necessarily, I need a subtext. I need to be interested yeah. in something. And the, the thing that interested me about them was, you know that a housing Compton between 19, I, and I may butcher the dates and I may get everything wrong, but a housing Compton was sold and repossessed between the 1940s and 1980s, was sold and repossessed by the same developer 18 times. What? Yes, they sell it to an up and coming community at an impossible mortgage. They lose the house, they repossess the house, and they sell it again to another up and coming. And it's first the Jewish, and then the Blacks, and then the Latinos, or the Japanese, and then whoever, 18 times. So they build a house for X amount of money, and they made their money 18 times. That has to be illegal somewhere. It has yeah. to be impossible. So. To me, that is the story, the story of how you build this whole myth of the ownership and et cetera. And it's actually you're building the failure. You're, you're, you're betting on the failure of the people. Ugh. And that to me, that was the social injustice of that that attracted me to the show. And yes, there is a there is a little Miss Vera and there is a couple of bad guys <laughs> and people die and that's fine. But I mean, to me, what it was very interesting is that injustice. Well, I feel like when you're working in genre slasher movies or whatever, I actually worked on uh, the fourth Hatchet movie. <laughs> so it's exactly what you're describing. But my friend Adam Green directed it and he's he's awesome. But uh, I feel like one of the things that genre has always done, whether it was, especially like fantasy, science fiction and horror is to kind of shine a light on a social social injustice of some kind and then abstract it just enough so it's like it's a monster it's an evil spirit it's a this it's that so that we can actually talk about the idea of what is happening in the real world and so to me you know looking at this show especially you know i mean like i'm a white dude (laughs) you know i'm a middle-aged white guy who grew up in middle america i grew up in florida actually and so i was not exposed to the ideas that are running through the you know, the blood vessels of this show as a kid. And I feel like having somebody, you know, come to my school and lecture me on it, maybe, you know, when I was young, maybe, maybe wouldn't get me, wouldn't get through my, my skull, but watching it in a genre film, uh, you know, again, be it any one of those, that's kind of the way to Trojan horse these bigger ideas into people is, you know, what you're doing is making it entertaining and using the genre conventions to kind of sneak it in through the side, which is ingenious. I think that is, I mean, there is this Greek guy, Homer is not Simpson, but the guy, the poet, <laughs> like 2000, 3000 years ago that wrote, got a real future, that guy. Yeah, exactly. That wrote this poem uh, about this sailor that went and fought all these monsters. And if you yeah. read through it, it's, it's about social justice or social injustice, or it's about fears. It's about the fear of the merchants. It's about the fear of somebody taking your job. It, so I think humanity has done what we're doing now in many different genres, whether it's theater and, 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 and Shakespeare did it, or it's the Greeks or, or, or Kabuki. We, we've done as a humanity, we're trying to make 
social injustice or social advancement digestible. Or, or, or yeah. even we're trying to make the opposite. You're, you're, we're trying to justify dictatorship. So I think we've done that before. And I think the genre model is brilliant because it, it pushes the envelope and it makes it digestible. So uh, there's kind of a different style that you use filmmaking-wise in the flashbacks where you kind of go black and white. Can you talk a little bit about how you chose that specific aesthetic? And uh, it is my understanding that there is one episode that goes into a longer passage of black and white and kind of how that functions within the world of the, the palette you've created. Well, it was very interesting because uh, the creator, showrunner, Lil Marvin, wanted to shoot one episode in particular that goes back to the origins of the horror of where this family ends up living. And it's the 1865, uh, before the gold rush or after the gold rush, they, these people come through the great migration and end up in, in a horrible place that some horrible things happen and spoilers are not included. Um, Fair. And his feeling was it should be black and white, but the studio or part of the studio wasn't too sure. So they didn't want me to shoot black and white. But you know, as a filmmaker, as a film fan, your audience knows that when you shoot for black and white, you have to decide that it's gonna be black and white because yeah. if not gray and black look the same. So the studio wanted me to shoot color. Little Marvin wanted me to shoot black and white. Little Marvin asked me, could we shoot color and still make it black and white. And I said, yes, that's not the ideal scenario, but of course we can and we will. So it was very interesting how I steered all my cinematography to a possible black and white uh, result with shooting like exteriors when the sun was very low. So you create long shadows. So the long shadows, yeah. it's sort of like a signature of black and white and working with dark contrast and shadows against the wall. And so we, we shot it and we did a pass in almost like a, an homage to Dickens and, and, and the assassination of Jesse James, sort of like this oh, wow. monochromatic world where, where it, it wasn't black and white, but it was almost, almost drained color. And then we did a pass with our fabulous colorist, Stefan Sonnenfeld. Uh, we did a pass in black and white. So we did two passes. And little Marvin showed them to the studio and they embraced the black and white. So that was a successful enterprise of lots of uh, Melox and, and Advil for the headache and the heartburn uh, that created <laughs> the fact that I was shooting black and white without shooting black and white. But it was very interesting how that resulted into a very successful episode. I think everybody likes it a lot. Now, if you had your druthers, if somebody came to you and said, we want to shoot this in black and white, would you use a different, would you use one of the monochrome cameras or would you still shoot on a color camera? No, I would. There is an advantage of shooting colorful black and white. And let me explain you a little technicality of it. Let's say you're shooting colorful black and white and you have this red Ferrari driving in the yeah. street. Yeah. And you know it's going to be black and white. So then when you do your color correction and if you know how Photoshop works, you pick the red and it's the only red element in that frame because it's very bright red, you know, it's Ferrari yeah. red. And you pick that red and you make it darker or brighter. So you could make it gray or you could make it black without affecting any other part of the frame. So shooting color for black and white is actually quite successful. 
The thing is, your production designer, your wardrobe has to be aware that it's going to be black and white. Because if I have a jacket that is dark gray and a shirt that is black and a tie that is blue, in black and white, it's all going to look gray or it's all going to look yeah. black. So it's more a production design and wardrobe issue than a cinematography issue. And of course, colleagues of mine will disagree and will shoot it in monochrome. I personally think it's more successful if you shoot color for black and white, because then you can tweak in the colors. Like your blue sky could be white or could be black if you want it, but you just pick the blue and make it darker. So it's, yeah. it's a very interesting tool. No, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And I mean, like, you know, I feel like if you have a monochrome camera, it's the same resolution, but it's all monochrome. I get, I get that you'll get more information in the black and the white and the gray, but, but what you're describing sounds, it makes total sense. And also, you know, with today's modern cameras, you, you know, you're, you're getting such high resolution anyway. What, we don't usually get too deep into the tech on it, but what camera did you shoot the show on? We shot it with the Sony Venice and we shot it with the Mini Hawk lenses that are a wonderful lens that has this sort of anamorphic feeling without being anamorphic lenses. But to go back to the monochrome, if I were to take pictures and, and publish my pictures in a billboard in Sunset Boulevard, then uh -huh. monochrome, if it's black and white, makes sense because of the sensibility for the black and white elements. But in a motion picture camera, there is no such a market that to develop a monochrome sensor, it's yeah. so important that you'll get the best monochrome sensor. You'll probably get the same sensor as the Venice just without the other three colors or two colors, you know? <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's, it's a funny thing. I don't think there is a market for a camera like that, you know? But I, I may be wrong. Anyway, we shot color and it turned into black and white. <laughs> no, that's amazing. So uh, what is next for you? What do you have coming up? Do you know yet? After finishing them, I moved unwillingly to Richmond, Virginia, which is a fantastic city and shot just finished two weeks ago, a nine month of my life in Richmond, shooting wow. a show for Hulu called Dope Sick. It's about uh, another happy subject. It's about the, the opioid epidemic and oh. the Sassler family and Oxycontin and etc. I shot eight episodes. I was the only DP with four directors. Barry Levinson, Michael Cuesta, Patricia Riggin, and the creator, writer, uh, Danny Strong. So I shot eight episodes, 104 grueling days. And I just finished two weeks ago. And what's next? Uh, I'm going to sleep for a little while. <laughs> Were you shooting that during the pandemic? We, yes, we started in at the end of September. It was fascinating. I think this is a, a great place to leave it. So a uh, reminder to all of our listeners, check out them, uh, which you can watch on Amazon Prime right now. And it looks amazing. Thank you for coming back on. And I, I can't wait to have you back on for the next thing you do. Thank you so much. And it's always a pleasure. And as you know, and I told you before, the answers are only good if the questions are good. And you are a wonderful <laughs> questioner. Oh, thanks, Jacko. Thank you so much. I love your work so much, man. Thank cool. you. Well, uh, we'll talk soon. So that was Chico Varese. Thank you so much, Checo. I look forward to having you on for the fourth time.
and uh, the fifth and the sixth and, uh, you know, onward and upward. I, I just love the guy and definitely check out them. I, I, have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. No, I've, I've, I've been really behind on some of my viewing these last couple of weeks. Well, it might be a little more intense than a lot of this. Like, I don't, I don't know that you like Your happy little elves. So that's, that's pretty much my speed is, you know, happy, <laughs> happy little elves. Yeah. It's uh, really well done and really scary. I, I, uh, I, I'm just very impressed with what he did. And now short ends. So it is now our time for short ends. Ilya, what is your short end? Wow. Uh, my short end has something to do, uh, with our podcast actually. Um, <gasps> I know, I know. It's it's crazy. Uh, is fact, it that I'm fired? I'm fired, aren't I? <laughs> You're fired, Ben. Hey, uh, r- really what it is, though, is uh, I'm speaking to you right now on a different piece of hardware than we typically use to record the show. And I got to say, on some hand, on, on one level, it's it's easier. And on another level, it's maybe a little bit more complicated, certainly a little more set up. But what's interesting about what I've got right here is it's kind of like all in one in, in the past you and I uh, have had to, I won't say kludge together, but a lot of cables, a lot of wires, a lot of stuff. I'm Dub- pretty kludged right now. Like, Dub- double headphones. Yeah, I, I see it. I'm, you got I'm earbuds, headphones. I've got, I've got yeah, my, my earbud under my other headphones and my earbud is talking to you and my other headphones are recording uh, on the, uh, the Zoom H5. Okay, so I have a single USB cable connected to the Zoom PodTrack P8. And I got to say, I was pretty against this piece of hardware when I first read about it some number of months or years ago now. I read a really scathing review of it online and I was like, whoa, I'm not going to touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. But I got to say, I opened the box, plugged it in, hooked up all the stuff, and in 15 minutes of, you know, browsing through the manual and kind of just, you know, fumbling through the menus, this thing is really easy. It seems to sound pretty darn good, and it's got a few extra sort of bells and whistles that other sort of recorder pod casting sort of uh, devices don't have. For example, there's some sound effects in here. Uh, it's exactly that, that what we need. That won't get old at all. <laughs> in no way is that okay. Uh, and you know, there's some funky music built in here, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So yeah, when we hear that on every podcast, we'll know exactly what hardware they have. It's the video toaster of uh, podcast. There's hardware. a little video toaster sort of uh, effects in here, but you can program your own stuff. You don't have to just use the stuff that's in there. It hooks up to a cell phone, which is really nice in case, you know, there's that person you can only get by phone. You can immediately pop it in here. Uh, it's re- can you put in, I mean, if you have your own original music for openings and closings and transitions, can you program that in there? You certainly can. You got a way better than theirs. A touchpad I mean, of know. nine buttons. And then you've got like four or five data banks of openings. So you can kind of, you know, slide through them and choose whichever set of nine you want to have open at a time. It's got a nice big. How many mic inputs? Did you already say how many mic inputs? It's got six mic inputs. Uh, one of those mic inputs is shared with uh, the computer, the USB, which is what how you're coming into me right now. And then there's a bunch of headphone jack outs too. And so you could really, you could put this on a table. And if you had a whole bunch of people sitting around the table, you could put all the mics heading in. You can give people their own headphones and uh, you could even have speakers going out to another room. And I got, you know, I got eight faders here that I can adjust and uh yeah record all these 
cool channels separately, and it seems to be about the same quality as the the other zooms. The one thing that it's really lacking is that it's not that small. The the, the little recorder that you're using, the recorder I typically use, uh, the H6 and the H5, those are tiny and easy to throw in your bag. This is not. This is like uh, as thick as like three laptops stacked stacked on top of each other, and it, it's uh, you know it's a little plasticky feeling, but it gives you an awful lot, including now it's a audio interface for your computer. So you plug in this one USB-C cable to your computer and to the back of this, and now voila, you're able to to send your audio both directions. Mm. Uh, yeah, straight straight from your computer. I can pull up a YouTube video right now, and you can you can hear that playing if uh, if I so desired. So well, I mean, what's kind of cool about that, I, I guess, would be if you were doing a panel too, and you you're doing like a live panel, and you were you didn't want to have to edit it. You just kind of wanted to record the panel, and then and there are plenty of podcasts that are like that where they have a panel discussion, and then they just publish that. And if you, I mean, I guess you could still choose to edit it if you want. I wonder if it records onto discrete channels. I bet it does. It does. Um, it, it's got different channels here and you can, you can choose to turn them on or off and mix them and with nice big so, fader controls. So that means that you could have six different people on six different audio channels. And, you know, if we were doing a live interview, that's actually been an issue where we had more than one person to interview and we didn't have enough inputs. I remember on one of our interviews where we had two people to interview, they had to share a microphone and I felt a little embarrassed. Well, we were, we were short of microphones. Actually, our, all of our recorders had the capability, but at that particular moment, we were short of microphones. And, you know, perhaps uh, the biggest difference though, between this and all the other Zoom recorders is... <laughs> the music stings and other things that are kind of built in here, which is on one hand entirely cheesy, but also uh, slightly wonderful, especially for that person who's just looking for the absolute maximum in their production value, and they don't uh, they don't have any other wherewithal on how to to get it, especially if you need the sound of an audience. Wow. All right, that's wow. enough of that. <laughs> All right, Ben, what's what's your short end this week? So, uh, you know, in keeping with my obsession with Sparks, which is the movie The Sparks Brothers, directed by Edgar Wright. If you if you see that documentary, you see that both the brothers, Ron and Russell, have been trying to make a movie. They've been trying to break into the movie world, you know, at least since the '80s or '90s. And a lot of their music videos are very cinematic, and actually they they create a lot of their own music videos. But they finally got a movie after several false starts, and they are in their 70s now. They finally got a movie made, uh, and it's called Annette. And I actually saw it in the theater, and it stars Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver. And it's directed by Leos Carax, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, of Holy Motors fame. And it is bonkers. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I think it, you're, I think that's that's right. Your speed. That's you love bonkers. Yeah. So <laughs> it's pretty bonkers. Uh, it is not for everyone. Some people will probably hate this movie. I found it to be kind of interesting and moving. It's a musical, and all the music is uh, written by uh, Sparks, Ron and Russell Mayall. They appear in it a couple of times. Uh, once right at the very beginning, and then later we're on an airplane, and they're playing the, the pilot and the co-pilot. So uh, Adam Driver plays a stand-up comic, unlike any stand-up comic you've ever seen. And uh, Marion Cotillard plays uh, a soprano with the opera. And they are in love and they have a baby and that baby is like a creepy doll slash puppet. And it's super odd. I don't want to get too deep into it because I, I would be spoiling vast swaths of it. But it's uh, first of all, it is gorgeous. It's beautiful to look at. 
the acting is really amazing. Uh, the music, if you like Sparks music, boy, oh boy, do you get some Sparks style music, even though it's, uh, Marianne Cotillard and, uh, and Adam Driver and other people singing it. And, uh, it is just, it's weird living in this world today. Cause I remember, you know, as a kid seeing movies like, uh, Pink Floyd, the wall or something, not to compare this to Pink Floyd, the wall. It's not, it's not the same kind of movie, but it's like, the rules didn't always have to be exact. Like so many of our movies have become very homogenous and similar. And it's always refreshing to see a movie that just does not adhere to any of the rules of cinema as I know them and tells a story in its own way at its own pace, uh, which is not me. That's not code for it's boring. It's not boring. <laughs> and uh, you got to read between and, the lines and, with this one. No, no. I mean, it's interesting because again, if it were not for K's, asking me at random if I wanted to go see this Sparks movie, and I had never heard of Sparks uh, before I went to see that documentary, I definitely wouldn't have gone to see this movie either because I would have been like, what is that? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say I definitely wouldn't have, but I, I don't know that I would have been so drawn to it. And I was, it was just unbelievably exciting to see it, to see it on a big screen. It lo- again, it looks great. It sounds great. And it's uh, rip shit bonkers. And, uh, and it does with a movie, what the sparks music does a lot, which is it can be a little campy and a little serious at the same time somehow. And it's hard to thin slice what part of it is sincere and what part of it is, is joking. And, uh, and it's, it's very clever and off-putting in that way. And also because it's such an unconventional movie, you will watch it. You, you will have no idea where it's going at any given point. Where did you see this movie? Uh, I, I mean, I saw it in the theater. I saw it at, uh, the Lemley in North Hollywood. Uh, well, fantastic. I will totally see that. Uh, uh, you know, do, do I need to see the Sparks Brothers documentary in order to enjoy the movie? Not in the least. But I, I do think you should see the Sparks Brothers documentary as well. I just haven't had an opportunity, <laughs> so but it's, it's on the list. Well, it, yeah. I mean, the thing about the Sparks Brothers documentary is I think anywhere you want to see it now, it still is $20 to stream. So you got to really want to see it, which is on the one hand, I understand. And on the other hand, I had again, I saw that in a the theater and I had no problem dropping. It was probably $17 or something for a ticket to see it. But uh, the economy of streaming and what people will pay for streaming is, is radically different. And, you know, even though people will pay $30 to see a Black Widow movie, a smaller documentary that, I, I mean, we can debate the cinematic merits of one or the other or the cost of pr- producing one or the other. But, you know, pound for pound, I got as much out of that documentary as I've gotten out of most movies in the last several years. So I absolutely loved it. And to this day, it's still been about two months. Probably 60% of the music I listen to is Sparks. So it, it really had an effect on me. All right, Ben, uh, I think that's wonderful, and uh, it's a great place uh, for us to leave it. Where can people find you if they want to look you up outside of this podcast? You can find me outside the Sparks house holding a boombox playing <laughs> In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. Not, not holding um, up a, a anonymous giant package that it contains an, an ugly clown painting. <laughs> no. Oh, man, if only. No, uh, you can find me at Ben Rock Online. A lot of people have been doing that. You can find all my social media links and stuff on there. Uh, I'm at Neptune Salad on Twitter. Pretty easy to find me there. Uh, you know, if you Google me, you'll find me. I, there, there are other Ben Rocks, but I, I think I'm easily the loudest of all the Ben Rocks. Mm, that all right. Find online. You're, you're on the... And the first page of Google. Yeah, feel feel free to hit me up, say hi. Always like talking to people who listen to the podcast. And Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras most days, although tomorrow I'm going to be out of the office for a good uh, chunk of it. But uh, but yeah, hotrodcameras.com, that's the, uh, the web shop that kind of is the public-facing place where you can 
buy a bunch of stuff from us. We uh, have all kinds of sort of skunk works projects and things going on. And uh, we're actually doing a big sort of remodel on our, our showroom, which is fun. But, uh, but yeah, if you listen to the podcast and you come on in, there is still a limited number of hot ride cameras, t-shirts, uh, say you're a, a podcast fan and ask for a t-shirt and we'll be happy to, to pass one along. Um, Rudely demand your t-shirt from Ilya, ask to speak to Ilya and then be kind of entitled and rude about it. You, you know, say. if you do that and I'm not there, my staff is going to think you're like total bonkers. <laughs> They're totally not good. They're going to be like, okay, here's your shirt. Here's the ladies small shirt, Mr. Three X. So they're going <laughs> to, they, yeah, they, they respond well to kindness though. They really do. So yes. if you go in there and you're kind and you say, Hey, can I have a shirt? They'll, they'll give you a shirt. They might even give you a hat you really want to add yeah i know it's there's like four left or something like that so you don't have to buy any clothes from the waist up you can outfit yourself (laughs) purely in hot rod hot rod cameras you'll be a walking billboard for us and we'll we'll greatly appreciate it hey ben let's thank some people yeah sorry let's do that again (laughs) okay all right so ben let's thank some people who who do we have to thank for this uh show existing uh, well, I mean, first and foremost, and always, uh, Alana Cody, our amazing producer, who's been kicking all the ass. We've been she's been keeping us real busy the last few weeks. So we have uh, some interviews coming up. Uh, we have some interviews that we haven't done yet that are also like I'm I'm giddy with excitement that we get to to talk to those people. We even did an interview today this morning that I think uh, people are going to find amazing. So that, that was today. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a blur. But yeah, that's right. It's we been did. a long day. Yeah. So we want to thank Alana Cody. We want to thank Ben Katz, who we never make uh, his job easy, but he makes us sound like not morons. So we appreciate that. Good uh, work, Ben. ben. And, you know, a little uh, inside baseball, the first thing I tell every DP when we bring them on here to, to interview them or any guest that we have is I, I say them, I say to them, the show is heavily edited. <laughs> and uh, I mean it, you know, Ben goes in and really massages everything so we don't sound stupid. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I saw his timeline one time and I was like, oh, God, that's us. <laughs> there were so many edits. Well, so that's yeah, that's all of them. Yeah. I mean, when I was editing them, it was the same thing. I, I mean, I think Ben's doing a better job than I did, but. It, you know, lots of cuts. Don't tell and, him uh, that. It's going to go to his head. Uh, <laughs> and lastly, but not leastly, Kay's Alatrakshi, who created every scrap of music you heard in this episode. Oh, my God. So much music. And is and, definitely uh, listening to us right now. He is more than likely listening to us and uh, has opinions about what we're talking about and, you know, might call me up and give me a piece of his mind about some of it. I'm just going to throw out one little bit of uh, praise for Kay's. Um, praise for Kay's. That's our new segment. Go on. Praise for Kay's. Uh, Kay's mentioned something about a color grading monitor, and I told him about how Hot Ride Cameras is now partnered with the number one monitor calibration company in Los Angeles, does all the studios, uh, to basically take a $2,000 or less uh, LG consumer monitor and turn it into something that's close to the quality of like a $30,000 reference grade monitor that someone can absolutely color grade HDR on. And uh, it it works really, really wonderfully. And Kay's looks at me and he's like, oh, you mean like that thing that I did like four years ago and I told you about and you must have totally forgotten. And he was uh, he was right on all accounts. I think he did tell me about that like four years ago. And uh, he had done it himself, and he's been using it for color grading. And here I came along what I thought was somewhat organically by finding out about this about you know, halfway through the pandemic and then making this whole thing and putting this all together. And now we've been selling these these pre-calibrated monitors, which are, which are wonderful. But yeah, Case was there like four years ago. So <laughs> Case is early adopter. I mean- yeah. That's just him all over. So we love you, Kays. So that about wraps it up. And uh, we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.